when a, a scholar called N.T. Wright, otherwise known as Tom Wright, one of the great scholars of our generation, was embarking on his trilogy, the three books to c- capture the New Testament uh, story and, and theology. And in the best tradition of tr- trilogies, when he got up to book four, and he's written five books in his trilogy, um, he wanted us to, uh, to capture the theology of St. Paul. And uh, one of his great books, and it's actually a, a very um, magnificent book, called Paul and the Righteousness of God. Um, and this is an idea of just how substantial the trilogy that's now five books has ended up being. Um, he's a very, very prolific writer, but a, 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 an excellent communicator, scholar. How would you start trying to entering into the theology of St. Paul the Apostle? Would you start with a letter to the Romans, that substantial book that has shaped much of the thought of the Western world? Would you look at 1 and 2 Corinthians as engaged with the cultural centre of the Greek and Roman world? The first chapter in his book, he dedicates to the letter to Philemon, the shortest of Paul's letters, addressed to one person and a house, household and a church that met in the home of Philemon. And that's where we're going to be exploring today. Since the beginning of February, we commenced a sermon series looking at the mission of God revealed. And we expressed it in terms of shalom, of peace, of wholeness, of flourishing in the sanctuary of God. And it's opened up a vision of what might be, what ought to be, what will be in the grace of God, of a flourishing, healthy world that's not characterized by aggression and by conflict and by self-centeredness. And it's been a sweeping vision. But at various parts along the way, if you're at all like me and others, you think through, that sounds wonderful, but how does that actually work out in real life? How does it work out in the messiness of the world in which we find ourselves, both in the world of the Bible and today's world? Philemon gives us a case study where, in essence, it would say, What does the gospel look like in this messy circumstance as a follower of Jesus? Now, what I'm going to do is paint something of the background of Philemon, both in terms of the literal architecture, the social conventions, what is going on in the story, uh, and paint a scene. And then we'll hear the second Bible reading read halfway through the sermon because there's a drama behind it that I want to highlight. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with Philemon. Um, It is a short letter, but it is incredibly rich in terms of not just the theology, but of what does this look like in terms of the nature of the gospel. So it is the shortest of Paul's known letters, and it is the most personal of Paul's letters. He's not speaking about the great drama of salvation as he does in Romans. He's not working through the, uh, the cultural engagement with the Greek and Roman culture like in 1 and 2 Corinthians and others. But he's speaking to someone that he actually uh, has a passing relationship with, to Philemon. And I need to sort of spell out a little bit around what the background is. So Philemon 
is, uh, appears to be a person of some means. He has a household. Um, and the house church that meets in a place called Colossae uh, meets in his home. And the letter is written to Philemon. It is written to two other characters who are greeted, Apphia uh, and Archippus. Um, and we don't know exactly what their roles are, but I'll just go back for a moment. Um, Apphia may be Philemon's wife. That's the most likely scenario, um, but we don't know that for sure. She could possibly be a female slave. But she appears to be a leader of this house church that meets in uh, the home in the, uh, the home of Philemon. Remembering it, that back in the first century, there were no church buildings. There were no dedicated space where people would gather um, in anything like what we describe now as uh, when you think of a church, I'm going to the church. It was all in homes. Um, so the background a little bit. Colossae, which you can see on the bottom, sort of third of the way down across, um, is in an area of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. So Ephesus, which is the centre over on the coast, the Mediterranean coast, it's actually the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Uh, in um, modern Turkey, it's near Kusadasi. It's a thriving tourist spot. There's a lot of cruise ships coming in and out, so it's a, a known part of the world. And just north of there is what was um, a thriving city port of Ephesus. Uh, it's now inland because the uh, marshes have built up and... Uh, um, the water's edge has moved further away. Ephesus was the centre of the most fruitful time of ministry that Paul experienced. He had over three years in Ephesus and a very responsive gospel. So a church was established in Ephesus and then missionaries were sent out from that church into the surrounding area and a number of smaller churches, other churches, were established. <coughs> Um, so if you know from the book of Revelation, it talks about the seven churches of Asia. These are the same churches. One of those churches is Colossae, which is about 100 miles inland um, and uh, close enough at the end of a valley. So where Colossae is, there's a, a, up in the foothills, Heopolis, and on the other end is Thermusium, and it's actually called the Lycus Valley. So you can, all, you can travel there now. Um, and the, still, the site is still there. Paul is in Ephesus and is in chains. We don't know exactly why. Um, it's not, not included in the account in Acts. But the, uh, the book of Acts doesn't include everything that happened in Paul's ministry. Uh, but he is now in a period in, ch in chains. But he's hoping to be released soon. So it's still in that local context and uh, Paul has written a letter while in chains from Ephesus to Philemon in Colossae, addressed to Philemon, the leaders of the church that meets in his home, and to the whole household church, the church that is meeting in his household. So to unpack that a little bit further, um, Archippus is another, appears to be a leader in the church, and uh, Paul's letter turns up probably from Tychicus, uh, who's a scribe, uh, who has been trained by Paul to read his letter. So in the ancient world, the mail service wasn't into letterboxes. It wasn't through a courier service that, you know, you sign on the door, drop it, and they run away. Uh, the courier would come having been prepared to perform the letter in an audience of some description. 
for these letters. So Tychicus would have been trained by Paul, would know what's in the contents of the letter, and says that uh, Paul wants me to read this. So gather the church so you can read this letter. They've got everyone's attention. What's Paul going to say? And uh, something of that drama of the moment is reflected in this letter to Philemon. So, as I say, it's in the hearing of the church. Now, what does a, a church in a household look like? Um, much smaller than we would probably think. <coughs> so the, uh, the shape of a, a house in the ancient Greek and Roman world was quite consistent right around the Mediterranean, whether you were in Spain, whether you were in Italy, whether you were in Greece or whether you were in Asia Minor. And uh, this would be a wealthy person's household. So this is not the average household. But the family that lives there would be a host to a whole community of people that engaged, lived and contributed in and around the household. Looking a little bit closer, you can see how there's an inner courtyard and a number of quite small rooms. So rooms, the courtyard itself would be open to the, the elements, would actually be a, uh, often a collecting point for water. And the dining area up at the top left-hand corner there around, uh, would have a three-sided table, a triclinium, where people would lie um, on their elbows to eat at that table. And otherwise, the servants and those who contribute, the patrons and others, would all have their own dedicated space within this household. And this became the home for the church for hundreds of years. This is where the church gathered. The household um, is not just the nuclear family, as we might think, not just the biological family, but would be an extended family across the generations. Grandparents, parents, children, very often uh, brothers and sisters in terms of the uh, uncles and aunties and nieces and nephews, uh, all those who contributed, some of those who uh, operated a business in and through that household uh, area um, would also be part of the household including the slaves. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I spent quite a bit of time on talking about the life of a slave, um, which is not the same as modern slavery or even the ethnic-based slavery, but the basic definition of a slave is that they are a chattel, they are a possession of someone else. Um, and uh, they had no legal standing, and the master, the paterfamilias, um, could do as they will of a slave um, in every way. So... Uh, in terms of instruction, in terms of expectations, in terms of uh, sexual availability, in terms of whatever they do, the life of a slave is in the hands of the master by law. For some, and the vast majority, that was a fairly harsh experience. For a smaller number, they actually had very good masters who would actually educate and train and prepare them to be released and to be freed. But one of the great fears in the ancient world was that slaves would run away because if they did run away, they might gather together and rise up against masters. And so there was a culture of ensuring that slaves were kept in their place. So when the church takes place in a household, it would have been in a fairly small space. Um, people, you know, so say a church of uh, 15 people was quite a 
you know, um, an average-sized church, 20, 25 would be a large church. It would take a fairly big home to be able to accommodate that. Not many of our homes would actually be able to go much more than, you know, 20, 25 meeting in, and that was certainly the case in the ancient world. But they discovered a new social world within the life of the church as it met in homes, as they recognised each other as uh, the social distinctions that happen in the wider community didn't count for anything within the life of the church when they gathered. So you see young and old, you see people from different backgrounds beginning to relate to each other as equals in the life of the church. In the midst of that, the household um, was dependent on the slaves to do all the grunt work, to attend to all the needs, and it was a major part of the ancient economy. Depending on the region, somewhere between 15 to 25% of the population, even up to 30 to 40%, could be slaves. And uh, runaway slaves were a particular threat to that whole social order. So it wasn't just for an individual to say how they would respond. The whole community would watch to see how a master would deal with a slave who was run away. It's hard for us to get a sense of just how, uh, how much of a worry it was, but a runaway slave was something like someone who's on parole, who then defaults from parole and decides to, to, to flee, and maybe to do so has stolen a few items, have stolen a car, they've done what they can to get away. So they're in that sort of perilous state where um, th- this is a big deal to be a runaway slave. And I'll just need to paint it out a little bit further. So um, this is an actual necklace that would come for many slaves, but certainly for those who had run away, would have a necklace fastened around their neck with this little plaque on it. Uh, A recreation of it looks a bit like this, with some Latin words on it. Um, If a slave ran away... um, Often there were bounty hunters who would be tasked with going to find them and there would be descriptions of the slave, uh, identifying features, maybe even a sketch of the slave uh, and it was a big deal to um, ensure that a slave was returned to their master. So what is that Latin on that that little uh, label that's placed around the neck say? This is what it uh, translates as, I have run away, hold me. And when you shall have returned me to my master, Zoninius, you will receive a gold coin. And you would have that around you for the rest of your life, or as long as you are still a slave. Um, Some of the slaves, when runaway slaves were captured, they were executed publicly. They were shamed as an example for others to say, don't even think about that. Uh, They could be crucified. They would be, some of them were branded with the letters F-U-G on their forehead. Fugitivus, uh, which means fugitive. Um, So that would be branded for the rest of their life as someone who would run away and had been caught. And they couldn't get away from that identity. So if they were found somewhere where they ought not to be, the whole community would capture them. Even more particular, that it was against the law, it was a criminal offence to harbour a slave or to give them any measure of support. So people could be uh, brought before the courts if they had harboured a slave and in any way aided and abetted them. So what's going on in this letter to Philemon? Paul, while he is in Ephesus, 
has, en- has encountered a runaway slave called Onesius. And whether through contact with Paul or whether coming through contact with the church in Ephesus has come to faith and proven to be uh, very helpful to Paul in that space. Paul is in a dilemma. What does he do? How does he counsel? How does he respond to Omnesius as he sends Omnesius back to his former master who is also now come to faith? We don't know the background Philemon is the master and we don't know why Amnesius fled. Chances are most cases uh, slaves fled when they were abused, when things just became so harsh that they just had to flee. So we don't know what the background, what the character of Philemon is. Uh, Some slaves fled to try and gain themselves freedom but it was a very fraught exercise to do. So this little party comes from Paul, took a kiss with a letter accompanied by Amnesius, announces to the church, could you gather the church because we have a letter that is addressed to Philemon and Paul wants you to hear this. So they gather. Amnesius isn't just a passing acquaintance of Paul. As we'll see in a bit later, he describes himself as I've become a spiritual father to him appropriate for Father's Day. Paul talks about what it means to be, and he's now my child. He's so close to me. Just before we have the reading, let me now picture that scene. So uh, Tychicus has turned up with a letter from Paul. He's asked Philemon to summon the household, the church, to gather in the household, and the church leaders, Archippus and uh, Aphia, And they don't know what Paul's about to say in his letter. Interestingly, as you'll notice in the reading, it's ten verses before Paul even mentions Omnesius. He doesn't start there. And he starts with a greeting and a letter. And you can sense the drama. Why has Paul written this letter? What's going on here? And we can almost imagine that in the background, in the shadows, is Omnesius for those first ten verses. And when, Paul, when Tychicus gets to that stage of talking about, through Paul speaking, that I've sent Amnesius back to you, he comes out of the shadow and comes into the, into the centre of the meeting. And could you imagine where the eyes go? Initially all the eyes are on Tychicus, who has this letter, addressing Philemon. So the eyes go to Philemon, who's saying, OK, what, what's, what's this about? then the church leaders have been named in that space. So it's obviously something which the church is involved in and the whole, congr- the whole gathering, those 15, 20, 25 people, are now becoming part of the, the chorus, the audience for this letter. And then you can imagine as Tychicus speaks and then introduces Amnesius, he comes out and stands before them. That's a very vulnerable place for slaves. How did he become a slave? Most likely he was born into slavery. A child of another slave becomes the possession of the master. But if he'd been through the slave markets, they were paraded naked on a platform in the market because the buyer needs to know everything about the slave. It was a very humiliating experience. So slaves knew what it was to be on parade in that space. Then as the letter progresses, you can almost imagine where the eyes go. So they're looking at Amnesius, then they're looking to see how is Philemon hearing us? How is he reacting? 
And what does Apthea and how is she responding? And Archippus. And this goes back to Dionysius. And it would have been a really dramatic moment to see how was Paul responding in this space. So in that context, it's now here, this letter of Philemon, um, as Paul as though Paul was speaking into the space and we are now part of the gathering. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, Grace and peace to you from the God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always, think, always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.
for the word of the Lord. So suddenly this letter takes on a whole new life when we sort of locate it in that background. So how does Paul respond in this desire to uh, do the right thing, to send Amesius back to Philemon, and knowing as he does so that if social convention was to be followed, then um, Amesius would be treated as a public warning to others. That was the expectation in the community, that you would deal very harshly with slaves who have run away. So Paul was in a dilemma as he does so, and he uses the word, uh, we starts by thanking God. Now that's not just trying to butter Philemon up, this is Paul's uh, habitual response when he's communicating. He wants to recognise how God has been in the life of others. So he gives thanks for the way in which God has revealed himself and is demonstrated in the life of Philemon and of the church. He describes himself not as an apostle. He doesn't say, look, I'm over you in terms of in the hierarchy. I have an authority that I could instruct you what you ought to do because I'm an apostle of Jesus. Um, I'm an ambassador. I'm not going to give you directions or instructions. I'm not going to say you must do this. But he says, I'm setting it aside. I'm a prisoner, which means I'm in a very vulnerable place. I have no power and I'm an old man. So I'm appealing you in that space. Um, And he gives Philemon space to respond as he chooses. He He says, you need to decide yourself. And I recognise that. That's, this is your decision, not mine. The response he makes, the short version of it, is on the basis of love. To accept Omnesius as a beloved brother. Now this is massively profound language from a servant who's there to serve the family to suddenly being named as a fellow member, as one of the the brothers amongst the brothers and sisters within the the household that is the church. And Paul was pointing out that this is what the Lord has done for all those who believe. It doesn't matter whether they are Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. That counts for nothing within the household of the church. He wants Philemon to receive Amnesius back as an equal before the Lord. And that is a huge ask. Now, there's a little play in words here that uh, uh, just worth noting. Amnesius was a common name for a slave, and it means useful. And it wasn't a term of endearment. It's more the sense that your identity is tied up with the degree to which you are useful. You only exist when you are... Providing services, you have a utility value. And if you run away, then you become useless to me. You have no value as a runaway. Um, So Paul was playing on that word and saying, but now in the Lord, he's come back and is useful again in the sense of not because of his capacity as a servant, but as a fellow worker for the work of the gospel. Um, so Paul then gives, uh, makes his appeal and he uses very strong language. 
um, verse 7. And the, the IOU is a sense that most people who run away will have incurred some debt or have some penalty to pay or something of that nature. And Paul writes in his own words, I will make good whatever that debt actually is. Now, um, just staying with that one for a moment, Paul, when he commends um, uh, Amnesius, he uses the phrase that someone who is uh, as my own heart is the phrase. I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. And there's a couple of different words that are used for heart. One is cardia, which is the organ that we talk about. Um, but that's not the word that Paul uses. It's the word means his whole gut, his whole being. Um, but that comes from the deepest part of who we are. Paul says, this is, and Mesias is now that to me. It's a very passionate way of, uh, of tying himself to the fate of Amnesius and his appeal. Now, one technical distinction here that could sound rather academic, um, and it is an academic distinction, but it's a really helpful one, and I just not just in this context to help us understand Paul better in this letter, but to understand of how we might take something of this in the messiness of our world in which the, uh, the culture around us is changing. So the technical distinction is that when we talk about society and culture, socio-cultural studies, the socio side of it is not the same as culture. But we often tend to use the two as if they are synonymous, but they're not. Um, and there's a reason why I'm drawing this distinction. Society comprises the institutions and the social infrastructure that provides social order and cohesion. As an obvious example in our contemporary world, the social infrastructure of marriage has been changed by the Commonwealth of Australia and in many other nations. So what defines that uh, social entity of marriage, that institution of marriage, has been redefined now to open it up to a whole broader range of people who can claim that status. That's a social institution. And we're living in a world where those... Uh, social institutions are changing and uh, can have a, such a variety of form and across different uh, ethnicities that can also be the case. Culture isn't the same as that social infrastructure. Culture denotes the way we do things. That's one of the classic definitions. It's actually a very difficult uh, notion to define. There's a whole lot of debate around how we define culture. But broadly... Um, the culture we have as a church is expressed through things that we have a culture at St Matthew's of staying on for morning tea after services, of hospitality, of uh, gathering in the hall in the courtyard and of uh, um, having different styles of gathering from our different services, a slightly different culture to our 8.30 service to the 10.30 to the Wednesday. And that's just a sort of a bit of a glimpse so the values, the rituals, our sense of communal and cultural identity is tied in how we do things. The reason I describe that is that to understand Paul, we need to understand that he's not trying to change society. He's not trying to change that social infrastructure of slavery to deconstruct it. That doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't do that and we are thankful that in God's time and in God's providence that social infrastructure of mastery and slavery was dismantled by Christians, William Wilberforce and others, and 
so those structures are not insignificant. But Paul, as a you know representing just um, a very small proportion of people in this emerging world, tasked with going on and changing the world, doesn't start by changing the social infrastructure. Where he does want to change things is the culture of the household church. So he says that as you gather in a household church, that is where this new way of, of uh, recognising our sense of identity um, can change. So if you're a master, become a good master, become a, a gracious, kind master, known for your care and your generosity and your sympathy. They were all radical notions. So what we read this is a, a plea to... Um, Philemon, not so much to change whether he has slaves anymore, but how he goes about being a quite different type of master. And that would be quite confusing, because if you imagine not only in that, that uh, gathering as the letter is read from Paul to Philemon and to the, the leaders in the household, remember that that household includes the children. It includes the slaves are part of the church community. They are now being brought into a space that they are brought to the table, the Lord's table, where they serve one another across the whole church body, the whole household of faith. Serve one another. Imagine the confusion of a slave who enjoys when the church gathers in the household and is served by others, perhaps even by the master caring and serving for them. Then suddenly the church gathering is over and they're back into the real world of the household and working through... Okay, how does this work now? I'm back to being your slave. <laughs> That's an enormous challenge. That's the world in which Paul is speaking. So what do we learn from this? Um, some lessons. First of all, we see a model of leadership and unity. Paul isn't trying to come on and saying, like, I'm, I've got the instruction, I've got the command, do what I say. Paul was more saying, this is what I'm seeking to do in my relationship with Anesius, and how I model that now into a more familial space, and I hope to model something of how I believe Jesus wants us to be, as a, as an ex, following the example of Jesus. So he models that in the importance of unity. The culture of addressing the issues that Paul uses is one of appeal, of respect, of giving freedom to Philemon to come to his own mind but providing a fairly consistent example through Paul's interaction with how he deals with the whole household. It seems to me, as we face challenges, both in terms of how we engage with the wider community, where our, the social order is not the same as what we would do within the church, and where we face contexts where there's conflict and disagreement in the life of the church, this has a lot to say for us, how we might go about engaging and expressing and exploring how we can faithfully follow Christ. I hope this becomes the culture that we, we do embrace and continue to model um, in our own life, but also as we engage with the wider community, as we engage with the wider church. So we have an example of what this mission of God, God's transforming grace, transforming not just individual lives, but transforming that household of faith, that church community, opens up a whole new possibility of how things could be and in time began to influence not just the household, 
but all the contacts, all their circles of friends, their networks of, of others who get drawn into it. That's how a household operated. And so it did begin to influence not just the households, but towns and wider communities and where the gospel began to reshape the, uh, the nature of the world. So, one final quote that I rather like about uh, Philemon. Uh, the, I'll get to this quote in a minute, but the one other quote is that it wasn't that Paul sought to instruct to free Onesius, manumission, but it was as if Paul opened a door before Philemon and said, you might want to consider <laughs> that option of freeing him and allowing him to enter into a, uh, a new pathway. But Paul did not stand against the might of the Roman world of Rome by opposing all slavery everywhere. It's a misunderstanding of Paul to think that's what's going on. He did sow the seeds of it, opened the doors for it. But he did stand with the slave Amnesius in his hour of need. So what happened? We don't know. Except we have this letter in our Christian canon. The fact that it was received and set aside and then used as an instruction for others, other churches in that world, gives us good cause for confidence that Philemon heard the church community modelled it and it was such a powerful thing that it was held out as an example for others to see. It is a powerful letter and it's well worth sitting with it. Um, and you can see why Tom Wright would actually have a passion behind what does this actually look like? Let's start with Philemon and work out why that's